So where do you look when you find that you're confused beyond your own ability to shake free, let alone overcome the troubles that life has to offer? Today on Pressing Into the Kingdom, we're diving into the book of James, found in the Bible, to see what James has to say to help us to not only have an anchor to steady our thoughts, but to overcome during those times in ways that we never could have before. So come along. Let's learn together. To our study series in the book of James, the lessons contained in this series, I'm confident, will grow you in the knowledge of God in such a way through Christ will not only bless you, but will also bless others around you to the glory of God. So, without further ado, here's the scripture that we're studying today. James 1, verses 5 through 8. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives it to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The believers who James was speaking to in this letter had been scattered from Israel because of persecution for trusting in Jesus Christ as Messiah. They were gathering together and forming new churches in the places that they were scattered to and in their infancy, immaturity in the faith had to be addressed. So what do new believers need? Most churchmen would say a discipleship program. Did you know that discipleship programs came into being in the Christian church sometime in the 1970s? It's true. 1,970 years after Christ rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, sat down at the right hand of God the Father, Discipleship programs came into being in the church, mainly as a way to get the people who were guided through unbiblical evangelism, told to repeat after the evangelist a prayer that's not found anywhere in Scripture, and then told that they were Christian, but really weren't, to act like believers. In a nutshell, discipleship programs were created to make dead people act like they're alive and to wash the outside of the cup while the inside of the cup stays filthy. But that being said, what most don't understand is that new believers do actually need discipleship. But it's discipleship that has its model in Scripture. It's called edification. And Scripture says, 
we're all to be edified in the Word of God by other believers in our congregations. By extension, that means that we're all to be involved in the edification of other believers, and that we're all, as believers, to be edified by others in the body of Christ, not just the new believers. It's part of the one another's commands found in Scripture. Edification is the biblical teaching and encouragement found in God's Word that builds believers up in Christ. And for new believers, at least initially, it's the form of discipleship that presses the need for the new disciple to have biblical assurance that he or she is actually a new believer who's in Christ. The entire church, though, is supposed to be, in one sense of the word, a discipleship program that has actual accountability. It's a scary word, isn't it? Accountability. It's scary, but it's true. The deacons, elders, pastors, or teachers have an accountability, and the disciples have an accountability, too. You say, what kind of accountability? Well, I'm glad you asked. Teachers, deacons, pastors, elders, you're accountable to God. To answer every biblical question the disciples have by using the Word of God as your source, not using your opinion, not according to any man-made traditions, but according to the Word of God. Any counseling you do has got to be rooted in the Word of God. There's a lot of Christian counseling today that's disguised as discipleship, but it's really wearing two masks because most of it's only psychology that's been baptized with a few verses of Scripture that have been taken out of context. Don't do that. Show new believers how to find the answers to their questions in the all-sufficient Word of God and in prayer. Yes, God's Word is all-sufficient for every situation of life. The Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter, when speaking of the triune God, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Well, there's no clause or fine print there at the bottom of that verse. You don't need a magnifying glass to find out what He really means there. There's no exceptions. All things that pertain to life and godliness means... All things that pertain to life and godliness are granted, given freely to us who are in Christ, through the knowledge of God, by God, in His mercy and grace. Disciples, you're accountable to be honest with God about your struggles, whatever they are. God doesn't need you to tell Him what's happened in order to know what's happened. God doesn't need you to tell Him how you feel to know how you feel, but God desires that you be honest with Him so that you can grow in your trust and faith in Him and that He may bless you with His solutions and His excellence would be proven through your weakness. A new disciple's accountability towards those that God has sent to edify them through the teaching and encouragement of God's Word is to speak up when they don't understand something. Honor the teachers that God's given you by honoring God and His Word. James says in verse 5, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Do you, whether you're a new convert or a pastor, Bible teacher, whatever, believe that, that God gives generously and without reproach to all who ask Him for it? Well, what happens most often is that we show that we really don't believe that God will actually and personally give His wisdom. And so we tuck new converts under our arms so tight that the unfortunate result is that we inadvertently become Savior to those we're trying to teach. 
Instead of pointing them to God as the only true source of godly wisdom, we deny the new convert the joy of discovering personally, by the grace of God, that God is very much interested in them, and that God, who never sleeps or slumbers, has unlimited time for them, that God's thoughts towards them exceed the thoughts they have towards God, and that God is not only loving towards those that are in Christ with a Father's love, but is also all-powerful and mighty to save, not only an eternal salvation, but in all of life. By allowing ourselves to be the go-to person that never actually shares our method of discovering the answers with those who are being taught, and by being too proud to show our own dependency on God, who is the only giver of true wisdom, and by not revealing to them the joy of seeking to know God Himself in His Word and prayer, we deny God the worship and praise that's due to Him for all the excellencies of His Word, and for His excellencies revealed in His Word, quickened by God's gift of faith. So does that mean when a new convert comes to you and asks about things concerning Christianity that you should just say, ask God? Not exactly. But you should show them how to discover, through the Word of God and prayer, the answers to their questions as you explain to them what God has revealed to you and other believers in the past using Scripture rightly divided and in its proper context. Teach them to seek Christ for wisdom, and by living example, display how you follow the Savior. Don't be their Savior. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Speaking of God, but by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, just as it's written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. New believers are very much like spiritual children. The book of Proverbs is a great place to begin because it's a book written by a father speaking to his child, teaching wisdom, teaching discernment. Proverbs chapter 2 says, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek for her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures. Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Here's an interesting question. How does anyone come to the understanding that they're lacking wisdom? To someone who's viewing godly wisdom in a dimly lit room, so to speak, they can only see certain things. As they face abrasive things, their need for wisdom is centered only around those things that are actually in view, that abraid, cut and grind the most. The issues that affect them to the point of desiring change are the only ones that they can see as important enough to desire wisdom as a solution. They're like a gardener who looks out into the garden and sees dozens of yellow dandelion weeds growing really well, while the plants they want to grow are dying. But the real issues are the roots of the problems. They can't see them, though. And just like dandelion roots that preserve the dandelions, even if you lop off its head, the next day another head appears. 
They know there may be a deeper problem when they see the new weeds appear like a hydra, but they don't know what the real problem is for sure. So, they ignore the need to understand what they really can't see completely and just keep lopping off the dandelion heads that multiply daily. But God, in His mercy and kindness, by His glorious grace, shines His light onto the garden of our minds and our hearts and shows us, through His Word, the real root of all our issues. You know, primarily, there's really only two main roots. One, our lack of knowing who God is. And two, our lack of knowing who we are. God is to cause us to desire His wisdom, and God has to cause us to see His wisdom as not only usable, but irreplaceable, glorious, priceless, desirable, a treasure. But even better put, His wisdom is to us who are in Christ, a life raft that's full of provisions with more than enough room for us all. In a boiling sea, when there's sharks all around us and no land in sight. Some of you might be saying, I've always wanted wisdom, even before becoming Christian. Well, I believe you. All men naturally desire wisdom. But why? Have you ever heard the statement, knowledge is power? That's why. And it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. They ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden under the lying temptation of the serpent that it would make them wise, knowing good and evil in a particular way. That particular way was that they would be like God, all wise, not needing anyone to give them wisdom, but rather they desired to have wisdom in the same way that God has wisdom needing no one to teach them. If no one's needed to teach you anything, then no one is necessary to rule over you. There would be no need for humility because who would there be to be accountable to? Ever notice that at certain ages, kids all of a sudden get those know-it-all attitudes? The desire to no longer be under their parents' leadership and wisdom, no matter how loving their parents have been towards them or how good, patient, and godly their parents have been towards them, it's a living artifact of the fall of all mankind. And just like Adam and Eve, rather than saying to the serpent, Nah, I think I'll just humbly ask God personally for wisdom. They decide to take wisdom by force, for themselves, without God. The name of this podcast is Pressing Into the Kingdom. And as believers, we do press into the kingdom with relentless, violent force. But the force exerted by us is not like some great athletic champion, some macho hero of ancient stories. No, it's more like the force exerted by a man who's reaching for that lifeboat because he's just woken up from a restful and relaxing sleep to realize, by the grace of God, that he's drowning in open water, got the taste of salt water in his mouth, and he's about to die. James is telling the flock of Christ that's under his charge to ask God for wisdom to not seek wisdom from any other source. He's reassuring them in verse 5 that God will give to them generously, and God won't reproach them when they ask. Reproaching is like this. Say that someone comes along asking for something that belongs to you. Time, money, effort, salt, eggs, whatever. But because of your personal past experience with this person, you say, well, what I have, I'll give you. 
But you need to know that before I do, it's really against my better judgment. And don't even think about asking for more of this later. I'm turning the path to my house into a one-way street. And it, and it leads away from, from your house. You know. And I'm hanging a sign on the door that says, Stop asking, go away. With your name written right under it, above it, and on either side of it. It's the look on the face of a parent that's had a really hard day. And when their child comes asking for something, they get that lemon juice scowl on their face. And it's falsely interpreted by the child, but it's still burned into that child's mind as saying without really saying, my parent doesn't have the time or enough love to give away to someone that's so undeserving and small like me. Brothers and sisters, no matter how you were treated as a child, no matter how badly or even how well, God, as Father, will always be a better Father to you than your earthly Father could ever be. Even if you've had the best Father on earth, He's still only a man, whose greatest fatherly role towards you is to teach you to seek God for everything and praise God through every situation. Parents, how you approach God and how you approach the Word of God is passed on by you to your children. Most pastors reprove believers for acting one way inside the walls of the building or around other believers and then acting another way when they're not. And they make a valid point that others will see your hypocrisy and either believe that it's an acceptable way to be or they'll distrust God's ability to actually change the heart of a man. But let's go deeper. Let's go past the dandelion heads and find the root of the problem. If you look to the book of wisdom, the Proverbs, specifically, as a to-do and don't-do list, that's legalism. That's not true wisdom. And the attitude that comes from that is actually an enemy of the cross of Christ. If we could keep the entire law, what need is there of a sin-bearer? Worse yet, if we could have kept the law of God and gained our own salvation from the wrath of God on our own, then God crushed his own son for no reason. And don't think, well, yeah, but God helps those who help themselves. How many of you know that's not a Bible verse? If you look to the Gospels as a moral compass that says, in effect, what would Jesus do? Shorthand, WWJD. That's moralism, not wisdom. There's absolutely nothing wrong with desiring to be moral. I mean, don't get me wrong there. God causes us to want to be righteous. But looking to Scripture as a guidebook on how to be moral, like it's a morality for dummies book, without the realization that without God working his morality in you, and without God applying to your thoughts his truth, that says, without his restraint of the evil inside of you, without God granting to you, by his grace, the desire to be clean, and by his power alone, the ability to be clean, you'd be filthy, and you'd be loving it. Without the understanding that it's God who is the only Savior from sin and the only giver of true wisdom, you're snatching up morality and wisdom like a thief steals clothes, but doesn't know how to wear them. And you're robbing God of the praise and worship due only to Him. So, let's biblically define God's wisdom. God's wisdom is the righteous application of true knowledge. I'll say that again. God's wisdom is the righteous 
application of true knowledge. God alone gives godly wisdom. Every other type of wisdom is speculation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says, we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing that's raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. If God's wisdom lifts us up, and then the world's wisdom presses us back down again, we're not taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. If we don't build all that we do, not just in the church, but in all of life, on the true wisdom of God, we're not only not destroying speculations, we're living by them. That type of living causes us to doubt God, and it weakens our faith in God. James says in verse 6 that when we ask God for His wisdom, we have to ask in faith, without doubting that God's able and willing to give His wisdom to us. Jesus said in Luke, Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He won't give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, he won't give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You say, well, there you have it. Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit, not wisdom. You're really taking that out of context, George. Am I? What's the mission of the Holy Spirit towards believers who are in Christ, according to Jesus in John 14? Jesus said the Holy Spirit would teach us all things and bring all things that God has said to us to our memory. Let me ask you, would that not be righteously applying true wisdom? Isn't it amazing how God's Word weaves itself in and around itself perfectly, like an immaculate blanket? The problem is that most people, more often than not, prefer a patchwork quilt that's made up of speculations and of God's Word. James says in verse 7 that that man who wants that patchwork quilt type of wisdom ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. But why is that? I mean, some of the quilt has God's Word in it. Doesn't that count? By choosing to sow in wisdom that's not true wisdom into the quilt, and then trusting in it to function properly, you've made an adulterous quilt. You say, whoa, adulterous? Where'd you get that? It's not adultery. It's not. Adultery isn't just the breaking of a covenantal promise, but it's also turning away from what God said is right towards what God said is not, all the while trusting the wrong thing to be a good replacement for the right thing. That's wavering. That's double-mindedness. That's adultery. James says in verse 8 that not believing and trusting God completely makes someone double-minded and unstable in all their ways. Now that's narrow, isn't it? Unstable in all their ways? Real truth is narrow. By definition, something either is or isn't true. Our enemy doesn't have to immediately get us to disbelieve truth that we've established is true. All he has to do is change how we get to the truth, our way of discernment where we look 
for the truth. If the enemy of our souls can get us to change where we look for wisdom and how we look for wisdom, he's already won. Because if we look anywhere but to God for true wisdom, eventually we'll disbelieve the truth all on our own. Thank you for listening in on the Pressing Into the Kingdom podcast. It's been a privilege and an honor to have you here with me today. If what you've heard has blessed you, would you be kind enough to let my sponsors, CR 101 Radio and GCS Apprenticeship Program, know? CR 101 Radio Network is a Christian Reconstruction Internet radio station. They host and broadcast lectures and sermons, my podcasts, and others. 24 hours a day and every day of the week at cr101radio.com. Grace Community School Apprenticeship Program is right now training and inspiring the next generation of Christian teachers, getting them equipped for the many tasks and the incredible honor of being a Christian teacher or even becoming an owner and operator of their own Christian school. gcsapprenticeship.com. Until next time, may God continue to keep and bless you to the glory of his name.